episode of Jinx, the Pat Higgins film podcast. In today's show, I'm going to be talking about a movie called Hellbride. This is a low-budget, extremely low-budget, romantic comedy horror that we shot in 2006. It is currently available to view on Amazon Prime. It is very much a product of its time, but it's got a few fans out there as well, so I thought I'd spend the episode just kind of revisiting that particular movie. Hellbride was actually the second feature film that my company ever shot, but it was the third one to get released. Uh, we shot Hellbride and Killer Killer back to back in the summer of 2006. Hellbride came first, Killer Killer was the latter half of the summer, but Killer Killer came out on DVD really quickly and Hellbride took a couple of years for us to actually finish what for us was quite a complex post-production because we had more in the way of visual effects, most of which have dated horrifically. I've got to be honest with you, a lot of the movies that we shot in the, the mid to late noughts haven't dated well in terms of a lot of the stuff to do with the visuals, in terms of um, special effects. Lots of it, it hurts because what we benefited from at the time was that there weren't many low-budget horror films in the marketplace, which meant that we were able to get decent international releases for a lot of our product. But where we benefited from that at the time has possibly hurt us in retrospect because we didn't have a lot of places to go to work out how to do stuff and we kind of fudged our way through it. So as a result, if you're looking at a movie uh, like ours that's a micro-budget movie from 2006, time has been very, very unkind to it. Uh, because nowadays micro-budget movies do have a lot of things at their disposal that we simply didn't have then. So I'm not pretending for a moment that Hellbride has aged with a great deal of dignity, but it is still a movie that I do get correspondence about, so I thought I'd take a little while to talk about it. One of the things that attracted me to writing Hellbride in the first place was this idea of horror being a kind of trump suit. Um, which you may have heard me mention before, depending on, on what of my stuff you've listened to. I kind of like the idea that actually, if you're a horror writer, you can write about any genre you like. You can create, in the case of Hellbride, a romantic comedy, or in the case of my movie, The Devil's Music, a documentary about rock and roll. And as long as you put some horror elements in it, it's then marketable as a horror movie. This doesn't work for other genres. If you've created a thriller, if you put four jokes in it, it's not suddenly marketed as a comedy. Whereas putting a ghost into a romantic comedy very much means that it's suddenly marketable as a horror movie, even if you're not actually setting out to scare people. So that was one of the things that attracted me to writing Hellbride, was the idea that actually I could structure this like a romantic comedy, I could write all the gags for it as if it's a romantic comedy, but as long as I stick a ghost and some eye gouging and a couple of mouths being stitched shut into it, it's sellable as a horror movie. So even at that point, as I say, this was like the second feature I ever shot, but I didn't want to just remake Trash House, which is the, the first movie that we'd put out. I wanted to do something kind of different. So I started writing this romantic comedy, 
that happened to have these gory moments within it and it happened to be um, <laughs> rather sort of darker than your average rom-com would be. As the year went through and we were prepping for this back-to-back -back shoot for Hellbride and Killer Killer, I went through a period, I must admit, looking back, where I started to care much more about Killer Killer and I kind of went off Hellbride while we were going through the rev up to the shoot in the summer of 2006. I think this was because Hellbride kept throwing problems to me and a lot of these were based around the wedding. The fact that there was going to be a climactic sequence set at a wedding, because there's got to be, you can't write a movie called Hellbride and not have the finale set at a wedding. People are going to riot, basically. And even as it was, we certainly got some sort of criticism when the movie came out that the wedding was by no means grand enough. Um, it was what was possible within uh, the confines of our budget and our shooting schedule. And even as such, it looks like the wedding looks like it's sort of shot in a in a warehouse unit with some lemon drapes hung up because that's exactly what it was. And with more modern camera equipment, I think we'd have been able to bring out some of the you know um, shallow depth of field kind of beauty of the situation before it all goes horribly tits up and starts getting blood up the wall. But back then we were shooting on a Canon FX1. We didn't have vast amounts of control over things like depth of field. Uh, we were kind of, it was our first movie that we shot in HD, in any sort of description. We shot it on HDV, so it was tape based, but in an HD. And yeah, we the movie hasn't aged brilliantly, but it wasn't just the technical side of getting the thing to exist. It was the fact that it was based around a wedding. Now, I've filmed a few weddings in my time, things for relatives and friends, and I'm a film guy, so if I rock up somewhere with a camera, nobody really questions why. But no amount of filming weddings, although that can be stressful in its own way, you only get one shot at it, is why people often you know, try and get a professional in to do it, but no amount of filming weddings can prepare you for how difficult it is to shoot a fake one. Particularly when there's other things in the mix, in this case, ghosts, we had gangsters, we had guns, we had gore, and just because those elements are there, the thing is that the other stuff about weddings that you have to worry about doesn't go away. Just because you're shooting a horror movie at a wedding, all the wedding shit stays there, and that was what the biggest problem was when we were filming the finale because yes you need to make sure that the blood sprays up the drapes in a particularly nice way when one of the ushers gets slaughtered by a monster with a beak face but you also need to make sure that the bride's hair looks beautiful and that the flowers haven't wilted since yesterday because where a real wedding takes place on just one incredibly intense day a fake wedding can be stretched out into several days and every day presents new continuity nightmares. Even stupid stuff such as balloons. Yes, we decided that white balloons that were full of helium were a nice way of filling the space in the background of a shot because as I say, we basically were shooting this in a warehouse unit with lemon drapes hanging up 
and we needed it to look filled. We didn't have enough extras. So balloons seemed like a really good idea. However, we were filming during a ridiculously hot summer. And what happens is as the days go past, the balloons lose their lift. They start to droop and sag and some of them pop. And out of all the millions of things that you remember to get while you were prepping the set, spare balloons was not one of them. So <laughs> we had a couple of methods of getting around droopy balloon syndrome, which seriously became a problem. It's where something that sounds so ridiculous, but if you've just blown up a dozen balloons and all of those dozen balloons are losing their lift, to start with, <laughs> we started to glue the balloons to stuff. So if the balloons were starting to drop down, we would glue the balloons to the curtains behind them just to try and keep them up in the air. Uh, because we are geniuses. Uh, we thought this was very, very clever. We would, we, so if you look at the balloons in the backgrounds of the shots, that they're, sometimes they're glued to each other. Sometimes they're, <laughs> we didn't use staples. We're not quite that stupid. But yeah, they, we'd glue them to the curtains. And then when it became apparent by about the fourth day of these balloons that they were losing so much lift, we thought, screw it. We, we can't keep worrying about these background balloons. We need to address it in some way. So we actually included it sort of as a plot point. And when the ghost appears, we made it through. We shot most of the wedding in chronological order because that was the only way to do it from any sane point of view, considering that we were starting off with everybody in their full kind of wedding finery looking great and looking squeaky clean. And by the end of it, we'd obviously sprayed fake blood over everybody. Everybody was kind of drenched and gory. So it only made sense to shoot it chronologically. So we hit a point in our chronological, uh, albeit multi-day wedding shoot, where the balloons were that had lost all their lift. We had the ghost appear for the first time, the ghost of Josephine Stewart, who is our hell bride. And we decided, look, screw it. When the ghost appears, let's have a cutaway shot of all the balloons dropping onto the floor as if it's like atmospheric pressure that the ghost turns up and all the balloons drop. And it, it, it's kind of, it kind of works in the movie. No one's ever said, I bet you put in that shot of all the balloons dropping to the floor because they'd all lost their lift because they'd been sat there for days. No one's ever commented on it. So I guess we kind of got away with it. So we're clearly geniuses. We're not genius enough to bring some spare goddamn helium and some spare balloons because we probably shouldn't have inhaled quite so much of it. But we at least kind of got around it. But it wasn't just the balloons because again, it's all the wedding-y stuff, not the horror stuff that tripped us up. Okay, flowers. So yes, even getting flowers for a fake wedding is tough because as soon as you say wedding and flowers to the average florist, they add a zero onto their quote. And we were shooting on an absolute shoestring. We'd already spent the vast majority of our budget by the time we got to the, the wedding sequence. But you can't have a wedding without some kind of flowers and we needed them to look reasonably amazing. Now, one of our, we sent one of our crew out to convince a florist to give us some arrangements that were just about to wilt. Um, I can't even remember if they gave them to us for free or gave them to us at a ridiculously reduced uh, rate, but it was, it was certainly uh, one or the other. And when these flowers turned up, we were over the fucking moon. It was like, oh my God, these flowers are exactly what we need. You know, our, at least our bride will be able to walk down the aisle carrying flowers. It's all going to look okay. Uh, and of course, the key thing in this is 
that we were given them because they were just about to wilt. And if I haven't already made this, this point clear, this wedding took place over several days. And so, oh my God, see balloons basically at this point. We actually hit exactly the same solution, which was have the flowers looking all lovely in the opening shots of the wedding sequence where our, our bride, uh, Rebecca Herod, was uh, carrying them down the down the aisle and then when the then try and keep them out of shot for a while and then when the ghost turns up have someone put them on the counter and then be rotted and so it it was exactly the same thing because science ghosts turn up and flowers suddenly rot that's just the way it goes if you didn't know that you don't know enough about ghosts and flowers and you'll never guess what all the other elements of of a wedding also caused problems. So hair and makeup. We had an unstoppable genius as our hair and makeup lead in the form of Bev Chalton, who was amazing. She was having to get up and be on set before anybody else turned up because of course she had to make sure that every member of cast from our bride to our bridesmaids through to our gangsters who were being covered in fake blood all needed to look fantastic by the time we rolled cameras every day which meant that she had to be turning up on set incredibly early. However, once uh, once we'd actually got underway, you've also then got huge continuity issues with every time you're spraying blood on someone, unless they're going to be wandering around that day uh, at keeping the blood stains on them overnight, which I'm sure some of our cast considered to be possibly an option after a while, every day gets harder. So... Bev, who did the, nearly all of that work for us, thank you. If, if I didn't say it enough 14 years ago, I will say it now. It, it was incredible work that kept us going right the way through, and I'm forever, forever grateful. The um, As I said, the, the continuity with the clothing was, was much the same. We actually got the wedding dresses, because we needed, obviously, multiples. There's one for our bride and one for our hell bride. We got those off eBay, um, but again, as soon as we started drenching those with blood, you can't go backwards on it. You can't go back and get pickup shots if once you've started down the route of wedding dress destruction, we didn't have any duplicates. The weird thing though, is that for the main, I don't know what happened to the Hell Bride wedding dress, but for um, Rebecca's wedding dress, uh, once we'd drenched it in blood and it had been bashed up and it was looking it looked you know properly horror movie wedding dress by the end of the shoot and um we genuinely thought okay well this is just trashed and i we didn't take it to a dry cleaner i'd have loved to have done that though i'd have loved to have tried taking it to a dry cleaner going oh do you dry clean wedding dresses this one's absolutely drenched in blood could you could you take out what you can i think we'd have ended up going to the police but I literally stuck the thing in my washing machine, which was partly just because, uh, you know, it was incredibly sticky and, and horrible by that point. And you just sort of think, all right, if we're going to throw it away, you don't want to put it in the trash with all the blood all over it. Took it out of the the washing machine and all the blood came out of it. So having not kind of washed it during the, the wedding shoot, we might have been able to get away with it. 
because once we stuck it just in our washing machine, all the blood came out of it, and we actually reused that wedding dress as a, as a part of um, Erica Spawn's stage costuming in The Devil's Music, which was a film we shot the following year. So um, for that particular uh, outfit, Victoria Hopkins, who was playing Erica Spawn, took this wedding dress and, and sort of stenciled in all of the embroidery on it. So it looks very different in that movie, but it is actually the same dress. Um, Elsewhere in the various problems of our fake wedding were, was the problem of guns. And it was specifically that we didn't have enough of them. We had a lot of gangsters, uh, at least a lot of extras by our standards, because in the finale of Hellbride, all of the people attending the wedding, other than the wedding party, are meant to be gangsters for long and spurious plot reasons. It was also basically meant that we could kill people off left, right and centre without people worrying about it being sort of Auntie Edna getting her head cut off. Um, which maybe we should have done. Maybe I should have, in retrospect, maybe people really wanted uh, properly respectable wedding guests getting slaughtered left, right and centre. Who knows? People are horrible. <laughs> maybe that's the case. But yeah, I think I made the decision while we were scripting that the guests were going to be gangsters to partly take the sting out of doing a wedding massacre thing. Um, but it did mean, therefore, that all of these gangsters run outside to have a gunfight that we couldn't afford, and they're all meant to be carrying guns, and we didn't have enough guns. We literally had one half-convincing prop gun between all of the gangsters, and there is a quick cut sequence where it goes, like a kind of Edgar Wright-style thing, where it goes chop, 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 showing all of these guests, one off the other, pulling a gun out of their suits and that is the same gun over and over and over again we would get one of our gangsters to pull the gun out and we would cut and they would pass the gun to the next gangster down the line we would get set up there close up and then producing it from their jacket cut oh it's the miracles of micro budget filmmaking one gun between 20 gangsters or whatever it was um so all of these problems we found ways around it we found solutions to nearly everything that went wrong. And weirdly enough, it felt like a charmed shoot. I'll tell you exactly how charmed it was. There's a sequence in it that takes place in a nightclub. That nightclub uh, has music in the background provided by Jim Bob. Um, I think it was his band, Jim's Super Stereo World. Uh, Jim Bob was the former lead singer of the incredible band Carter, The Unstoppable Sex Machine, who were one of my all-time favourite bands in the universe. But yeah, so uh, we got this great music for this nightclub sequence that I was really, really stoked about. But when we actually came to shoot that sequence, we had a darkened room that we were going to be filming it in, and then we suddenly realised on the day of shooting, everybody rocked up, and something that had never been... Uh, obtained from our filming list was disco lights and so we had this nightclub sequence and we had no disco lighting nightclub lighting whatsoever cast were on set I know it seems like it would be impossible to overlook the purchasing of disco lighting when you're shooting a sequence in a nightclub but funnily enough that's exactly what we did we overlooked that so when James Fisher who was our male lead turned up that day I said to him Unfortunately, we're going to have to take a half hour before we, uh, an extra half hour before we start shooting, because I'm sending out a runner to try and hire as much disco equipment for two hours as they can get with whatever paltry money I've given them. And James looked at me and said, 
I've got a boot full of disco lighting. And he did. We went out to his car and James had a boot full of disco lighting, which just summed up that shoot, really. Hellbride, for all the challenges that were thrown at us, it, it was a boot full of disco lighting every single time. As in everything that went wrong, there was an easy solution to it. And, uh, I mean, it seemed that James did some sort of part-time work um, as a DJ. And so he had this boot full of disco lights. And so we were just able to shoot the whole sequence. But the mad coincidences of things like that, that like every time something went wrong, there would be an easy solution for it. And to be honest, Hellbride was the most fun I've ever had on a movie set. It was really, really, really cool. Our, our cast and crew were absolutely amazing and I'm forever grateful to each and every one of them. Uh, our luck ran out. And this is a story that I've told before, but I'll tell it one more time. Our luck ran out very much on the very last day of filming. Having had this whole blessed shoot, as it felt like, uh, on this long, hot summer, this was the last day of the wedding sequence and it was the last day that we'd all be together. Everybody was heading out the next day. Our cast availability had completely uh, deteriorated. We had at least one of our cast was actually flying out of the country the next day. There was no way that we could extend our shooting schedule for the wedding sequence beyond this day, but we knew we didn't need to because we knew that we would be able to get everything that we needed. Everybody was there, we, you know, what could possibly go wrong? What actually happened, and again, bear in mind this is in 2006, where being able to film in HD, which I mentioned earlier, was an unusual thing. It was the first thing we'd ever shot in HD. You certainly couldn't walk into a high street store and purchase any means of shooting in HD. Equipment to shoot in HD was very specialist stuff. And as I say, we were using a Sony FX1, which was shooting to tape, but was shooting in 1080 HD. We only had one battery for it, and that battery would only charge on the camera. It did, we didn't have a separate charger for it. So in order to charge the battery, we needed to put the battery on the back of the camera and plug the camera in which again worked okay. It meant that we'd run off the mains for a while and then our battery would be fully charged up again and then we'd be able to kind of go fast and loose again. But while we were taking a shot on that last day of the, the wedding shoot, unfortunately, uh, my director of photography, Al Ronald, who is an amazing human being who I've worked with on loads of movies and will be again on Power Tool Cheerleaders versus the Boy Band of the Screeching Dead, which I'm very excited about, he accidentally trod on a cable. Now the cable he trod on was the power cable going through into the back of the Sony FX1 and what happened was it ripped the connector from the mains to the camera. Now what this meant was that that connection broke. It broke on the camera and it broke on the lead meaning that we had no way of getting power out of the mains and into the camera we had no way of getting another camera because, as I say, the closest stockist of any kind of HD equipment would have been on the other side of London. You'd have been looking at thousands of pounds um, to actually pick it up as a purchase. Renting it would be very, very unlikely. And we needed to get everything shot that day because our cast were flying away into other places. So 
we were stuck with everybody there ready to film and nothing to film them with that would be in the right resolution. We had uh, access to sort of behind the scenes cameras and things like that, but all of those shot in standard definition because HD was a real rarity. And obviously our whole movie had been shot in HD. That was one of our key things. And so if we were to go, well, we'll just shoot the finale in standard definition, we would be destroying all the future proofing that we'd done for this movie. And I was absolutely distraught. I've got to be honest with you, in the grand total of, of times on set where I thought things have gone tits up, that one was one for the ages. I was just sitting there thinking, we're fucked. There is no way back from this. There is no way we can get the electricity out of the wall and into the camera. And I was right, there wasn't. There was no easy solution. So Al and I went to one side and we turned the camera on and we looked at how much charge was in the battery. There was seven minutes. There was seven minutes of charge in the battery and we knew that every time we turned the, the camera off and on, that process of turning off and on would sap more of the battery. So we left it off and we spent an hour or two hours, I can't even remember now, planning out every single shot that we were going to need. We needed to get our cast and crew like a well-oiled machine and we knew that we would just start the camera rolling and roll that seven minutes trying to get every setup moving every light around after we'd got each setup with the camera still rolling and try and film whatever it i can't even remember how long it ended up being on screen but it was the last maybe 15 setups of the movie just filming them all on this seven minutes of battery. Bang, 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 bang. And we did it. That's what we did. With seven minutes of battery power, our incredible cast, our incredible crew were moving lights around, delivering heartfelt emotional speeches one second and then getting up straight out of shot, leaving the camera rolling. It was absolute madness. And that was how we got the movie made. Because sometimes in this incredible low budget world, that's the thing you have to do. You have to go that extra mile and pull together as a team. Because I really came close to throwing up my hands and thinking, there is no way around this. We're going to have to reshoot the entirety of the wedding sequence because there's no way we were going to get continuity back. Um, or, or I'm just going to have to scrap the movie. But it was everybody pulling together. It, that wasn't really an option. I knew I couldn't do that because we'd already spent thousands and thousands of pounds on it. So that moment at the end of Hellbride where we got however many setups it was through seven minutes on the battery uh, and we did it by teamwork was one of the most distressing but ultimately rewarding experiences that I ever had in the micro-budget trenches. And um, I've been in the micro-budget trenches quite a lot. I've... I've had quite a lot of that kind of stuff. Every now and again, people ask whether we're going to do a sequel. Uh, because Hellbride actually ended up being seen by quite an awful lot of people. It came out on DVD in the States, was reasonably well distributed over there. Came out on DVD over here and got a, it came out sort of full price. And then it got a second life as like a movie that uh, HMV would stock for £2.99 at Halloween and stock really high. So uh, there'd be piles of Hellbrides in uh, HMVs in Halloween. 
Uh, it also when a uh, one one of our previous uh, former distributors, when their um, distribution deal on Hellride was running out, they set up a side deal where they effectively uploaded it to YouTube, and it had it racked up over one hundred eighty thousand views before their license ran out, and we politely asked them to take it down, which they did. Um, so between that and the fact that it's been on Amazon Prime, as I say, for three or four years, means that an awful lot of people have seen Hellbride. Not all of them have liked it. It's a micro-budget movie with, as I say, all of the war wounds that you get from something having been shot in 2006. Um, but an awful lot of people have, have seen it, and therefore, although we've never made our money back on that particular movie, because of all of those various sorts of factors. The fact that a movie comes out on DVD in the UK and comes out on DVD in the States doesn't necessarily mean that that money ever makes its way back to the filmmakers. Hellride itself lost money, but reached an awful lot of sets of eyes, which possibly meant, means that a sequel might be more likely to be financially viable. Um, the industry's moved on a, lot, on a great deal uh, since we were signing away those DVD rights sort of 12 years ago, there are an awful lot more potential revenue streams available without having to go through a third-party middleman. So every now and again, I think to myself, yeah, well, if we did a sequel to Hellbride now, we'd only need to reach a certain fraction of the, the insane number of people that have seen the original in order for it to potentially make its money back. Um, and I've got a treatment uh, and actually a partial script that has two nice kids in it called Danny and Bronwyn who are getting married um, is very sort of hopefully it hits some of the same tonal stuff without repeating what people have already seen in Hellbride but I never really know whether we're ever going to do it but whether we do it or not I look back at Hellbride itself as a really lovely time in my career it was a, a movie that I loved a lot while we shot it and although it's got all of the problems you'd associate with any micro-budget movie from over 10 years ago, there's a lot of stuff that's really great about it as well and it was made with an awful lot of love. You can find it, as I say, in the UK and in the US, you can find it on Amazon Prime, It's probably uh, so search for Hellbride or search for Pat Higgins and you can probably find quite a lot of my stuff on there, but it's been nice spending the last half hour or so looking back at that movie. And I'll see you again next week for another podcast about something else connected with film. Uh, until then, take care. My name's Pat Higgins and my conscience is clear. Mm -hmm.